Well, it's great to be here, and it was just very recently that I talked to Don and to the council about transferring my ministerial credentials here to Crosspoint, uh, and that you will serve to help supervise uh, my life and conduct as a minister of the Christian Reformed Church who's serving as the director of chaplaincy and care. Now, normally, the director position had to require a move to Grand Rapids, Michigan. But with everything that had happened this past year under COVID, with the uh, headquarters there shutting down, they decided to allow that person to work remotely from anywhere. They just hope, were hoping to find uh, a great person, and I hope that's me. <laughs> I had moved 15 times already in the Army. So retired from here, came out here, my wife had started at work at uh, Crossroads in San Marcos. I wasn't ready for another move. Lord, I thought, I like it here. I'd like to stay here. So just, it was just amazing that this position came open and did not require another move for us. And so we're excited to be here and to be part of this family here. And so the council, uh, I think this was in March or April, met. I had a little discussion with them. And I think they've also sent out some details about being part of this church here. And our membership is being transferred up from uh, Crossroads to here. So you'll, you'll see us here uh, in the months to come, and we're excited about that. Well, as the director of chaplaincy and care, this morning I'm going to kind of share a little bit about a, how I became a chaplain, and also why this date of June 6th is so significant to me. When I was in college, um, about that sophomore year, I had to make the decision about seminary because I had to start Greek and other additional classes there. And I was also wrestling with that time of whether to go into the military. Um, I said, Lord, I, I think you want me to go into ministry, but maybe down the road I can combine both of these desires. And so started that process, graduated from Calvin College at that point, and then kind of went across the street, across the pond, past that on the campus there, and started Calvin Seminary that August after graduation. And it was during that time frame where I really started realizing, I think I really felt called to be a chaplain in the, the United States Army. And I entered a program, the chaplain candidate program. I was endorsed at that point. And I went off to the chaplain officer basic course, which at that time was at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. That was the summer after my first year at seminary. Well, after graduating from seminary, I did serve two years at church in Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church in Chicago. But then I put the packet to be accessioned on to active duty. And that's what happened. I was picked up and brought to active duty. And after that board had met and called me and they said, have you thought about where you would like to go? Where would you want your first duty assignment? And I said, I want to go to the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And then the person at the other end of the phone says, you know they jump out of airplanes, don't you? I said, yes, that's why I'm asking for it. Have you ever jumped out of an airplane before? No. <laughs> Are you sure? I think so. <laughs> Okay, so I got my orders. We moved from uh, Chicago, and I showed up there at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. This was in uh, September of 1996. 
And came in there, and I had to put different stuff on the uniform, the 82nd patch, uh, the maroon beret, which was a, a significant thing for the airborne, that you would wear that. But my supervising chaplain said, hey, you're not going to go into your unit quite at this point because you have not been to airborne school. I said, oh. He says, you're going to come and you're going to report to me every day until that assignment comes through and you're going to report to the division chapel. But he told me, he says, you can't be walking around in the A2nd Airborne area and not have your jump wings. You are known as what's called the leg. That is a person who doesn't have airborne wings. He says, it just does no good until you go off and get the wings and come back. Well, as I report that chapel every day, the chapel had these beautiful stained glass windows which had been donated and had captured a lot of the different things that the uh, 82nd had been involved in. And the chapel was named specifically after Chaplain George B. Wood. George Wood had done four combat jumps in World War II with the 82nd. So every morning I'd report there and look around and just kind of start soaking up the history of what was going on and what the division had been part of. And then finally my orders came, I went off to airborne school and came back. And then I could go around and, and walk into my unit area there. A very important thing that happened that following spring is before Memorial Day week, they have what's called the All-American Week. And they have veterans that will come back to Fort Bragg it's a time to gather, to reflect, to tell stories. And in one year in particular, um, I was given the honor of being the escort officer for a Colonel Mark Alexander, who had some very important, significant leadership things that he did in World War II, especially on D-Day and the days that followed after that. And so I asked him some questions. He told me about some of those experiences, and I listened to those World War II veterans. So June 6th was a very significant date. Because the invasion did not start when that first ramp hit the beaches of Omaha. Utah, Juneau, soared. The battle was already going on. The 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne had jumped in hours prior to that. Behind the beachheads, they were trying to hold off a German counterattack to give that room an opportunity to establish that beachhead there. And in particular, the 82nd was involved in a place called St. Marigalese. And as I came back from that week, I told my wife, I said, someday we have to go to that area. I have to see what happened there to walk around just to pick up some of these, the context of the stories I was hearing of their experiences of when they jumped in. But it took a while. It wasn't until 2011 that I got orders to go to Germany. And we went to Hohenfels, Germany, which is in Bavaria. And then finally, I asked my mom who was coming out, I said, could you kind of come out uh, the end of May, early June? watched the kids for a couple days, and then my wife Chris and I went out, and we stayed at a bed and breakfast in St. Marigalese just outside that area there, which is right across from where a very important battle had taken place there. And then we walked through 
And we went to a lot of the places where things have happened. But probably the most powerful experience was the Normandy American Cemetery. And you'd walk in there and see these rows of crosses in the Star of David. Some had names on them. Some were to the unknown. And even today, I just saw that there was, again, some remembrances that took place there. St. Mary Galice had a remembrance that took place. Because in that part of France, a lot of these gravesides are actually maintained by volunteers. In the sense that the American government has these national cemeteries, they do a lot of the maintenance type of stuff, but volunteers will go there at certain points of the year and they'll put flowers and other things on the grave. Now, there was one that wasn't at the uh, Normandy American Cemetery, but the Epinal Cemetery, northeastern France. And this particular cemetery has the remains of 5,000 American service members. And this community has what are called godfathers. I know we kind of have an image of what we think of that. But their volunteer society makes sure that on Christmas and other times of the year, they'll put a wreath at Christmas and other times they'll put flowers. And one in particular, a Robert um, Kellett, a soldier who was buried there, his godfather had wondered about this person. And he saw that was a Robert Kellett of Fond du Lake, Wisconsin. And he decided he wanted to see if he could find more information. And so he wrote to a University of Wisconsin-Madison, a history professor who was teaching a lot in World War II. Her name was Mary Louise Roberts. And he wrote her and said, could you help me know more about who's buried here? This is his name. Well, she took that email and went to her class and she asked her students, who would like to help me to learn about this person? And everyone raised their hands in the room that day. So she wrote back, and what he did, he actually went around and he found the gravesides of another 30 fallen Wisconsin soldiers in that cemetery. And he sent those names back to her. She gathered that and turned it over to her students and they began to start researching. They went and were able to look at army documents, databases, census records, sometimes newspapers that were on, you know, archived on microfilm and all that. And they started building who this person was. In fact, some of the students came across that letters had gone to the soldier but had never been opened because they arrived after the soldier had died. And the army and others had kept some of those documents. And then students were able to read those. So fact by fact, photo by photo, they put together who these men were and they sent that out back to France. Well, this godfather was able then to take that information and he found that uh, Robert Kellett had one living sister 
And he wrote to her and said, I just want you to know, I remember. I go out there. I do these things. I want to remember what his sacrifice meant. This still goes on. And it's a pretty amazing thing that in these parts of France, that those communities take that time and effort to remember that sacrifice. And as we were there at that Normandy Cemetery, again, as we were looking at some of these headstones and thinking about who was there, we reflected on that and then walked down to the beach. And it's interesting because you look at this and it's just hard to imagine what happened on June 6th. It's a lovely beach there. There are a few signs left of some of the bunkers and other things there. But the magnitude of what happened just was hard to think about. This was probably one of the most significant events in history. And as I was there, I was recalling, not that I had that memorized, but I remember that Dwight Eisenhower had put out a statement to be read to all those that were involved in the invasion. It had gone out the day before, it had been passed around. He had written this. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven, striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms and on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. So I was contemplating those words there. My wife reached down and picked up two small rocks from Omaha Beach. And we took those rocks back with us and put them in a bowl on a shelf. And every now and then, I would walk by later on after this, and I would think back to what those rocks meant and the place it came from. And I remembered the fallen. It's interesting sometimes we do that in other types of things, settings. To pick up something as a memento. To keep something. You know, it seems sometimes thinking back to the, the good times, like when your baby has the first haircut and you would keep some of the hair. And then I do remember my fourth child asking, well, how come I don't have that? And I said, you know, honestly, you do that with the first couple of kids, and then afterwards, those types of things we didn't collect as much. But those are things that we would do to help remember something. You might have something like that, which automatically you think about something that you did, or picked up, or bought, or collected, but that served to remind you of something. Well, in our text for today, 12 stones were picked up 
in the middle of a river on a dry riverbed to serve as a reminder, to tell a story. Now, by themselves, these rocks were not very significant. But together, they served as a reminder to the generations of what the Lord God had done for them. So we're looking at today at Joshua chapters 3 and 4. I'm not going to be reading through all of it. I'm going to go through and pick out some verses here. So we're going to start here at verses 1 through 5 of Joshua 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, who are Levites, carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And that's what happened. The orders went out. Everyone was ready to go. The ark went by. They would fall in line, keeping their distance. And in their minds, and they were contemplating what was going to take place. What will we witness today to see what the Lord will do for us? And so they began to march to that river. And as they came to it, the miracle happened, of course. As they were getting ready to cross into it there, We look down at verses 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away, a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabia was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. While all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Now this was not the first time God had parted waters and allowed them to cross a body of water. It had happened before under Moses. Here God was also saying to them that Joshua is the new leader with God and under God's command and authority was there to bring him now into the promised land. And so we continue then in chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them at the place where you stay tonight. 
So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. The stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So they had put together this monument of 12 stones. I don't think that these were very significant. You know, one person had to be able to put on the shoulder, so it can't have been too large. But they piled them up together, and that was to serve as the sign to the future generations. Because the future generations were not going to be there, were not there to witness God's power that day. The stones would serve as that reminder, as a memorial to tell them the story of what took place. It even had a specific date for its remembrance, which is on the 10th day of the first month. And then the instructions came down in verses 21 of how you would tell someone when they would come across these stones. What would you tell them? He said to the Israelites in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just as he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you will always fear the Lord your God. So in these simple, unpretentious, 12 river stones it tells the story it tells the story to remind those who come across it that there is a God who has the true power over heaven and earth that God delivered them in what seemed to be these impossible situations but God went forth and brought them out of slavery and bondage into the promised land. As we close this morning, I want you to also think about another stone. And again, we don't, none of us ever seen this stone. We don't know where these 12 stones of Israel are. And there's another stone. A stone which served as a reminder of an act of God. Because this stone was rolled aside from a tomb. And that stone serves as a reminder. It tells the story. When it was rolled aside, it meant that the power of God went into the tomb. God brought his son, Jesus Christ, back to life. On Easter morning, God parted the stone from the tomb. 
The tomb could not contain the love of God, could not contain the hope which is for us. God rolled that aside, and out of that burst forth the life and the power and the hope that we have. Remember when those who came across the stone being rolled aside, they looked at and said, what does this mean? And the angel of the Lord spoke to them and told them, he is not here. He has risen from the dead. Though we continue to put up stone markers in cemeteries, and we mourn those who have died. We must remember and recall that God has rolled aside the stone of death and that in the midst of difficult times, even in the midst of death, even in the midst of the cemetery, we proclaim the good news. Even as we shed tears over the loss of loved ones, we know that there will be a day, as Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus on that cross went into that river of death, parted its overwhelming waves, said, follow me. And his sacrifice and resurrection led us to the other side from slavery now to the promised land. What does that stone mean that was rolled aside? How will you tell the next generation? How will you tell those who do not know about this hope for the world? I ask you today then to reflect on that. To ponder that. To ask God to give you the spirit. To be able to testify that the stone has been rolled aside. He is risen. And that is what we tell to all generations. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your spirit to come into our hearts. To give us that peace. And Lord, for those today that maybe are struggling to find that peace, may the spirit give comfort. That even as we deal with this terrible thing of death, where, where it seems it was so final. Lord, we know that you have brought us this incredible hope. Lord, give us your spirit to tell the story, to proclaim to all of those of what you have done for us, that you have given your life for us, that our sins may be forgiven, that you have given us life when you rose from the dead, and that in all things, God, let us be your glorious instruments of peace and mercy and hope into this world. Amen. Amen.